Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, alongside two-time published author, former Marriott Platinum Premier member, John Adams. John, there continues to be some jockeying in the SEC West standings. We'll discuss that get into Jimbo Fisher's latest embarrassment in Columbia, South Carolina. Also want to unpack the Jermaine Burton fans rushing on the field situation and some comments that Nick Saban made explaining his decision to play Jermaine Burton against Mississippi State. And of course, we'll have our picks. First though, John, a game I was at last Saturday, Baton Rouge, Undefeated Ole Miss going up against LSU. First quarter, it was all Ole Miss. But that's become a familiar scene for Ole Miss fans throughout the course of this season. It happened just against Auburn the week before. Ole Miss started fantastic and then had a fight on its hands in the second half against Auburn. Well, this was no fight in the end. LSU just came back with a flurry of counter punches and, and eventually crushed them by 25 points. And now, now it is LSU alongside Alabama tied atop the SEC West standings. Both teams are off this weekend and will return to action first Saturday of November. Alabama at LSU with first place in the SEC West on the line. First off, John, how realistic is it to think that, that LSU can win that game? And what do you think of the job Brian Kelly's done this year? Because I wrote about this after the win over Ole Miss. I, I, I thought that was a mess of a debut. I know LSU almost rallied to beat Florida State in that opener at the Superdome, but they just, it was a comedy of errors, really. Did not look like a disciplined team. And now, all of a sudden, this looks like an improving team. It looks like a good coaching job by Brian Kelly. And, and here they are tied atop the West. I think the message to LSU fans would be trust the track record. Brian Kelly's won wherever he's been. Had college football playoff teams at Notre Dame, so he's a good coach. That's pretty well documented. But you're right. The FSU game was an awful opener for LSU. Looked in disarray. Uh, Kayshawn Booty, the the wide star-wide receiver, was sulking on the sidelines. Mason Smith, the uh, star defensive tackle, got hurt. It, it just looked like, oh, my gosh, what a mess. What a debut. What a horrible debut for Brian Kelly. And then there was the uh, blowout loss to Tennessee when LSU looked helpless against Tennessee's offense. And it's not the only team that's looked helpless against that offense. But it, it just it added to – uh, I think the growing concern among some LSU fans who don't believe in being patient. But now we see a team that played, I mean, it looked like it was going headed for another blowout loss. And then it comes back and plays great. Uh, kind of looked like a best case scenario of what this LSU team could be. It still doesn't have a lot of pieces. This isn't a typically... Uh, abundantly talented LSU team. You don't so, think so? I, I think they're pretty talented. No? Well, I, no. I, I think their running backs are just okay. That's fair. Um, I, I mean, it's they've got some good receivers, but I don't know if the receivers are as good as they were supposed to be. And the offensive line starting two freshman tackles, that's a challenge. So I just think of uh, – some of the, I guess I'm comparing it to not last year's team, but some of LSU's best teams when I say it's not a typically sure. talented team. So uh, I think Brian Kelly's done a, a really good job to get LSU in this position. Someone who's not done a very good job this season, John, is Jimbo Fisher. And, and the uh, situation, I think, really just keeps getting worse in College Station. I mean, you could say rock bottom was losing to Appalachian State in, in week two. And, and in many ways, I guess it was. But, you know, if Texas A&M would have bounced back and recovered from that, you could say like, well, you know, overlooked them. That was that was a regrettable game that didn't take them seriously, whatever. But now, no, that was kind of becoming the theme of the season. And now 
you have Texas A&M losing on Saturday at South Carolina. How about that, John? Fifth-year coach Jimbo Fisher, one of the highest-paid coaches in the land with one of the, the, the richest buyouts if he were to be fired, loses to second-year coach Shane Beamer's Gamecocks. Yeah. Not a good look. <laughs> no, it was not. And um, Jimbo's fish, Jimbo Fisher's offense, it almost looks like A&M doesn't even practice offense. Maybe they don't. Uh, well, that's, that we haven't be been to different. practice. We can't confirm. That's a good point. I guess uh, as much money as Jimbo's making, he probably says, why, why do I need to go out there and practice? Practice. Come on, just practice. He does so, like life on the ranch, I've heard. He does. Well, he, he's going to have a big ranch for a long time, no matter what happens to him with the Aggies. But, I mean, what's more striking about it is how, when you consider how Jimbo was once perceived as an offensive guru, quarterback whisperer, he had big-time quarterbacks uh, at Florida State. He was, he was an offensive coordinator in the beginning. That's where he first built his reputation. Um, and then you watch this offense, the Aggies quarterbacks, no matter if they're hurt or are able to play, even when they're playing, they look like they're hurt. It, it's just such offensive line. We, we, we mentioned, I mean, offensive line is horrible. I thought South Carolina's offensive line was bad, but this one is even worse. Um, so I just don't make, I don't know what to make of this mess. I mean, to me, Jimbo needs to bring in, and we certainly know A&M can pay the money. Jimbo needs to bring in an offensive guy. And, and, and a and, few more good offensive linemen and a talented quarterback, too, while he's at it. Is that would help me. Well, he got Connor Wegman, the five-star freshman who played some Saturday. He did not remind me of five stars. Looked like a .5 star in that game. But uh, I, I think that would be in his best interest. For one, that that kind of shifts the blame in a way. He can say, hey, I'm trying to do too much. My mm -hmm. mistake. I'm going to bring in a guy and turn over the offense to him. But I wonder if Jimbo could do that. I I don't know because his ego is, is built around that offense, and I'm not sure he could. But that's, to me, what he needs to do because his offense is not working. I know he needs a better quarterback but he's got a really good freshman receiver, a really good running back. He just don't do much with it. Well, to your point of whether he'd actually do that, John, I mean, if if he was told, hey, Jimbo, you need to bring in someone to run this offense, he could say, what are you going to do, fire me? <laughs> sure, I'll take a check for 90 minutes. I mean, that's the thing. When you give these coaches these guaranteed contracts with this huge yeah. buyouts, I mean, if you want them to make any changes, all they have to say is, no, I'm not going to do that. You can fire me if you want. I'll take the $90 million. <laughs> I think that's what I'd say. No, I'm not going to listen to you, boss. Just pay me $90 million. I'll go away. That's, I'll go that's buy the me problem. A, yeah, I'll go buy me a country and live there on that's the beach right. somewhere. Yes. We know, John, that I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that anybody's on a hotter seat than Brian Harson. He's he's taking up residence there. He's paying property taxes on that on that hot seat the whole bit. And it continues to feel like a, a win, not if situation with Brian Harson. I'm I'm a little surprised it's got to this point, but they don't have an athletic director there. So maybe they're just waiting for someone to fill that seat and pass along the pink slip. But the bigger question to me then is if Brian Harson eventually is fired at some point this season, who moves into the pole position then on the SEC hot seat? Despite that massive buyout I mentioned with Jimbo Fisher, would he move in to the lead spot in the the SEC's hot seat pecking order? Could it be Eli slash Aliyah Drinkwitz at Missouri, who's in his third season and just slipped past Vanderbilt? And Missouri's smattering of fans are getting restless out there with, with Eli Drinkwitz. They want him to make a quarterback change. They want him to hand the reins to freshman Sam Horn. He has, hasn't done so. There's frustration there. Or how about Mike Leach? Someone who has produced some success and fits and starts, but I'm now starting to wonder, have we seen the ceiling for Mississippi State 
under Mike Leach and going seven and six last year. You know, then he he returned what I thought was a talented and veteran team this year. I thought, okay, there's going to be a raising of the bar and started okay. Wins over Texas A&M and Arkansas. Mississippi State was five and one. And then back-to-back losses to Kentucky. And they just got blown out by Alabama on Saturday. And now Mississippi State's five and three. And I think is looking at about another seven-win season. And so you just wonder if that's sort of the ceiling. So those are the three contenders I'm throwing out there. Do you see like a, a prime candidate among that trio? Or is there someone I'm, I'm overlooking in the mix? Does Vanderbilt coach get a pass? Vanderbilt coach gets a pass. Okay. All right. Just want to clear that up. I would put, I, I know Texas A&M has so much money. Uh, Gas prices are high. <laughs> yeah. But I just don't know if it has that much. I mean, Jimbo is, he had a great recruiting class, his freshman class. I, I would have to put Eli Drinkowitz ahead of him because that the Missouri Vanderbilt scene that was that didn't look like an SEC football game. It really didn't. And uh, to Missouri's credit, it fans didn't storm the field after after the big win over the Commodores. They almost blew a seventeen point lead. Uh, there's just not much buzz going on around that program. It, it just I mean, if if Missouri just sort of drifted away and just left the conference and stopped playing football, I, I don't know. Would anybody really notice? Probably not outside the state of Missouri. Well, I just – but they've got the Cardinals. So I, I just think, uh, yeah, I would put him – I would put him at the top. And, but it's – I think next year, Jimbo – if he if this continues, the losing continues, and he's definitely on the hot seat next year. Yeah, when it comes to buyouts, I, I wrote this earlier in the year. I'm I'm to the point where I just kind of ignore the buyout. When people say, "Oh, well, he's got that big buyout," eh, every time we say that historically, they end up paying it. Now I know nobody's paid anything close to what Jimbo has. Jimbo's got a, a buyout exceeding 85 million and you know it used to be we looked at that buyout for Gus Malzahn 21 million after the 2020 season which he was fired like oh my gosh they paid Gus Malzahn who had eight straight winning seasons 21 million to fire him at Auburn well this would be like quadruple that (laughs) if Texas A&M were to make a move on Chibbo Fisher so it's not going to happen this season or at least I, I can't I can't see a scenario in which it would happen this season but what about this time next year, that buyout will come down a little bit. It'll still be huge. It'll have come down a little bit. Jimbo in year six. I mean, if it's not working next year, do you think Aggies, you know, the, the, the deep pocketed Aggie boosters will just say, Hey, we're stuck with this guy for the next several seasons, even though there's no sign of this thing working. I don't, I, I think if it yet again stalls next year, you pass the hat and you pass it again and you pass it again until enough money pours in there. And that's one thing about Texas A&M. The money does seem to pour in when, whenever they need it. You're right. It does, Blake. And, and one thing I think that doesn't help Jimbo's situation is what Josh Heupel's doing at Tennessee. I yep. mean, he comes in and program is three and seven. Three and seven under Jeremy Pruitt in 2020. And he comes in and he wins seven games. Not only that, he has such an exciting offense. Average a school record 39.3 points per game last year with modest talent. And now Tennessee's the third-ranked team in the country. I guarantee A&M has more four-stars on its roster. So uh, people see what how Jimbo is struggling to make inroads here. And then they watch, this, watch Josh Heupel come into Tennessee – flip a switch and boom, they're a top five team. I think that, uh, I think that hurts Jimbo's situation. I'm not convinced Texas A&M will qualify for a bowl game. And, and I know that doesn't matter really what it used to with the introduction, of the college football playoff. I mean, going to play and say the 
Gator Bowl. Um, no offense to the fine folks at the Gator Bowl. We were there a few years ago. John had a had a fine time there. But you know, going to a bowl like that doesn't mean what it used to to a lot of people. But still, you have to go back to the 2008 season to find a time when Texas A&M did not qualify for a bowl. And here they sit at three and four. So they need to, to get three more victories to be bowl eligible. They have one cupcake left against Massachusetts. That should get them to four. But they also have four conference games against Ole Miss this week, Florida, Auburn, and LSU. Now, I know, you know, that's not necessarily four auto losses there, but you could split you could split those four and beat Massachusetts, and I guess you're sitting at six on the nose. But what if you go one and three in those other four? Texas A&M could, could very conceivably not even qualify for, for a bowl this season. I know it doesn't mean what it used to, but that's a that's a pretty embarrassing look if it were to come to that. Very much so. And it doesn't mean as much to make a bowl anymore, but it means a lot to not make a bowl. I mean, if you go to the the Tax Slayer Bowl, is it still called the Tax Slayer Bowl? I call it the Gator Bowl. Gator I don't, bowl. I don't, yeah. I'm not those sponsors don't put any money into my pocket. Now, no, if you do want to put money into my pocket, my email address is btopmeyerandgannett.com, in which case I'll call it the Tax Slayer Bowl. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I just remember we had a really hard time getting into that stadium. You remember we, that? We did, and I wasn't going to bring that up because I mostly had a good experience down there. Love the beach. As you know, John, I know you're a, a beach enthusiast as well. Had good food on that trip, so I wasn't going to bring up the actual experience of getting into the stadium, but you're right. We did to just wade through a mob of people um, to get to that. Now, we managed not to punch anybody, which some would have you to believe if there's a mob of people around you, it gives you a right to hit somebody in the head. But you and I both got to the gates waiting through a swarm of people that night. But yes, it was not easy to get there. Yes, we did. And uh, I totally took us off topic there. That's okay. I, I agree with your assessment, John. Eli Drinkwitz, I would put behind Brian Harson. In, in the hot seat pecking order. I think one problem for Drinkwitz, and I always think this is a problem for struggling coaches, when you're working for an athletic director who did not hire you, they have no reason to stand by you. You're not their guy. And that's the situation Eli Drinkwitz finds himself in at, at Missouri. He's a, he's a struggling coach working for an AD who did not hire him. Missouri maybe only has one win left on its schedule. It will play New Mexico State later this year, also has games against South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Arkansas. So it probably finishes with four or five wins this season. I think he goes into next year on, on a pretty warm seat. But I might put Jimbo number two on, on the list behind Drinkwitz. I, I know I mentioned Mike Leach, but I think Leach gets to another bowl game this year. I think he comes up short of what I thought was possible for this veteran team with a very talented quarterback, but I just don't know how big the appetite is at Mississippi State. If Leach is going seven and five, you know, is there an appetite for a change there? I don't necessarily think think there is. Um so I, I would I would go drink what's one, but then if you're looking for a number two, I know the figure is huge, but so is Texas AM's revenue. So is their fundraising potential. I'd put Jimbo too. Well, that's fair. I, I, Mike Leach again. It, it's hard to say what to do with them. They he teases fans. He 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 gets fans thinking. Here we go. We're going to win a bunch of games. I think one thing to look for next year. He's got a lot of experienced players on this team. A lot of players experienced in this offense. And I think next year, if things don't go great, I think he could end up on the hot seat. Agreed. Changing gears, uh, something I wrote about after Saturday was Nick, Nick Saban's, not only his decision to play Jermaine Burton, but his comments explaining that decision. So to set the scene, as as many of you have seen the video, but if, if you have not, there's video that shows after Tennessee 
beat Alabama a couple weeks ago. The fans are storming the field, and there is a a petite college girl who's among the revelers running on the on the field. She's running towards Burton at the last instance. She kind of jukes to her left to get out of his way and give him a clear path. And the video, although shown shot from a distance, shows him raising his right arm, making contact with her in the head. And the, the, the college gal, she stops briefly, holds her head, kind of looks in surprise at him, and he continues on to the locker room. Well, Nick Saban played Jermaine Burton and said afterwards that, um, you know, quote, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation like that, but I talked to him. He was scared. I was scared. Some of our other players were scared. I think you learn to respect other people because we have a responsibility to do that of the circumstances that we're in. I talked to the guy. We have him in a counseling program, but I didn't think it was necessary to, to suspend the guy, end quote. Now, I had written, John, that I think Jermaine Burton should have been benched at least one game for this incident. I, I didn't think this rose to the level of kick him off the team or sit him for the year. But you know, I think the video shows that that the woman – the college student who was on the field. Yes, SEC rules say you shouldn't be on the field. Yes, there is a inherent risk of danger and injury when you rush the field. But I don't think that gives you a green light if you're a player uh, to reach out your arm and, and whack somebody in the head as they're trying to avoid you running onto the field. He had a path to the locker room. He made a mistake. I think he should have been benched for at least a game. But what I thought was even more, I guess, a, a dangerous precedent here being set by Nick Saban. He's basically providing a playbook to any player on his team. If fans rush the field, he's, he's giving them a playbook for how they can harm fans on their way to the locker room. All you have to do is tell your coach, well, I was scared coach. That's why, that's why I whacked that person in the head. I, I was scared uh, of the situation. And I think Nick Saban's trying to gaslight people here by saying Jermaine Burton is scared when the video shows him walking to the locker room, a 200-pound player, walking to the locker room pretty casually, helmet in hand, not wearing his helmet, and then he reaches out. He turns and reaches out and whacks a, a, this woman in, in the head, um, as appears to be shown in, in the video. So I don't know. It, it's it, it, impossible to say what emotions he was feeling in that moment, but you would have thought if this was a man in fear, he would have been wearing his helmet and and moving quickly toward that locker room to get out of the scene. What did what did you think about the decision to play Burton? About these field stormings we continue to see in college football and and Saban's explanation for the matter. Well, I, I probably would have benched him for a game, as you said. I kind of agree with that. It, it's just perhaps if the person that ran onto the field, perhaps if that had been a male instead of a female. I guess I'm I'm old school, but the idea of a guy hitting a girl just doesn't seem right. Fight or flight response, uh, if he were that fearful. Yeah, I can see when you got a, thousands of people rushing on the field, I can see the anxiety level rising significantly. But then why not just get off the field? Why not rush off the field? And if you injure somebody while you're running off the field accidentally, that's different. You're trying Completely to get away. Agree. Yeah. You're trying to get away from everybody. You're concerned about your safety. And of course, I mean, to me, that would be a natural reaction is to put that helmet on. I mean, if I don't, I'm high anxiety, man, if I, if I see thousands of people coming out there, what's separating me from them? That helmets have separating me. That's what I would have been thinking of. And maybe he wasn't thinking clearly on it, but it was just a bad look. And there may be things that we don't know about Jermaine Burton. Maybe that entered into it with Nick Saban, some things that Jermaine Burton had gone through, but there's no way we would. So we just have to take it at face value. What happened? And what happened was, I mean, he has a choice. He doesn't have to raise his arm. I, I, I mean, he does. He, surely he can distinguish that this is a smaller person, a female. And he doesn't have to do that. But, you know, we've seen, we we saw recently what in an NFL game, I forgot the game, the team. Yeah, it was the Raiders somebody, game. Mm -hmm. the I think I know what you're talking about. The Raiders game where the, the player, like, shoved a photographer uh, out of the way. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? A video yeah. Man? yeah. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I remember many years ago, 
I mean, this back in the sixties or early seventies, some fan ran on the field or linebacker for Baltimore Colts. Uh, Mike Curtis just unloaded on the guy like he was a running back. It's kind of like, this is our turf. You don't belong here. This will teach you to stay away. And that's true. The SEC rules say you're not supposed to be on on the field as as a fan after after the game. You you get a fine for your school for for rushing the field. I, I kind of equate this to though, you know, because you hear a lot of that from Alabama fans, like, well, she shouldn't have been on the field anyway. Fair point. Rules say she shouldn't. However, if someone cuts you off in traffic while you're driving down the highway, they shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Shouldn't be cutting people off in traffic. But you don't then get to follow that person to the gas station and whack them in the head after they get out of the car and they're ready to fill up the gas. You know, it's the old two wrongs don't make a right scenario. Nick Saban can't control the actions of students in the stands other than to win the game so they don't storm the field, but he can control how he disciplines a player. And not only do I think, you know, he should have sat Jermaine Burton for at least a game here, but I just thought his explanation afterwards, you know, what prevents then another Alabama player from doing this and then just playing the old, well, I was scared coach card. And so no harm, no foul here. Is there, is there something else the sec needs to do about this? Uh, forget the incident in particular with Burton and the female. What about, I mean, just the idea of fan storming on the field. You can't just because you say it's a hundred thousand dollar fine, which it was, I mean, that's not going to stop a lot, some people from running onto the field. So You're right. Something, I mean, and, and it can be a dangerous situation. Even you take incidents like this, interactions between players and fans out of it. I mean, you know, when you're tearing down goalposts and when you got that many people in a confined space, I was down there on the field afterwards in that game, John, because I was covering it. And uh, I was trying to get to Tennessee's press conference and you had, you know, one of these event workers told me I couldn't walk around the tunnel to the press conference that I had to walk across the field to get to the press conference. It's like, well, there's thousands of fans out there. You want me to join them and and cut across the field uh, to get to the press conference? Yes, I was told that's what you have to do. So, yeah, I mean, you're down there on that scene. And by that point, the goalposts are already down. But you got fans out there smoking cigars and everything else. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to get a cigar burn out here. Uh, but I waited my way across and I was fine. But yeah, I mean, it can be a, a dangerous scene. We've seen people, bad things happen in, in these scenarios. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, shy of putting up, you know, barbed wire or, you know, like a hockey type glass around the, <laughs> around the walls. I don't know how, how you keep these fans on the field. And I think if you were to give some some administrators and, and college sports leaders like truth serum, even though there's these fines in the sec, I think they kind of like it. I think they kind of like it when the fans storm the field. Occasionally it's good for television. Television shows that it shows the atmosphere of college sports and uh, the joy and the passion that comes with winning a game in the sec. They wouldn't probably say that out loud. Although you did have some videos around Tennessee where it seemed like, you know, the administration was kind of reveling in the scene afterwards. And why not? I get the I get the emotion of the moment. I understand that. But I think probably more people than would would admit publicly don't really hate some of these field stormings and, and the emotion and joy that shows that comes with winning a game in, in the SEC. What do you what do you think? You think I'm making a leap there or no? The SEC just means more. I think we've heard that a few times. So it means more fans on the field more people tearing down the goalpost. It it's reflects the zaniness, the passion for SEC football. I mean, that was a that was a video, a, a promo video is what it was for SEC football. You're right. I, I mean, do you think any recruits watching that said, man, I don't want to go there. I might get I might get hit by a fan after a game or the goalposts might fall on my head while I'm walking off the field. No, they're thinking, man, those people are crazy. That's where I want to go. So to me, it's a, it's a selling point, but it is, it is risky behavior. I mean, people have been killed storming a field. Those goalposts are heavy. They're the real deal. They come down on your head. It's hurting. 
How can you control it? German shepherds. German shepherds. They, they they're really. I guess they're good at herding crowds, right? Are, are those the dogs they use to herd sheep? No, German shepherds having it. That the intimidation factor. If you have German shepherds lined around the field, that might discourage someone from running out there. What if you're I'm a dog kidding. lover? Yeah, I, I am a dog lover. Uh, but I, I just, I, I don't really know what you do. I mean, you barbed wire, I, there'd be a liability issue there if somebody mm-hmm. falls into the barbed wire. I thought it was odd, though, really odd, watching the LSU Ole Miss game. And LSU fans ran onto the field. I was puzzled. I, I was there and couldn't figure it out, John. I'm I'm in a press box. It didn't feel like a an upset at all, honestly. I mean, the betting well, no, lines the betting line favored LSU. And I know Ole Miss was undefeated and ranked. And this is a long-standing rivalry, but yeah, it's like LSU, why are you? And this isn't even like you know, taking the moral high ground of, you know, it's dangerous. You shouldn't be on the field. All the things we just mentioned, it was more just like, why, why are you storming the field after beating Ole Miss? You know, like, I don't get that. It was, it was very, that was strange. I understand whether you think it was right or wrong. I understand why Tennessee fans, especially students would want to storm the field after beating Alabama for the first time since 2006. I think Uh anybody who's been a college student can relate to the emotions that night and think, yep, I understand why those people wanted to storm the field in that moment. I do not understand why you you would have wanted to storm the field after beating Ole Miss on, on Saturday. And that's not to totally run down Ole Miss. I, I think Ole Miss is going to win, you know, eight or nine games, maybe even get to 10 this year. But, you know, this is not a team you'd lost 15 in a row to, like Tennessee to Alabama. No. That, that was That was strange to see. LSU's won 17 in the past 22 games in the series. So, I really think uh, I, I think social media was a factor in that. I think so so much was made of Tennessee's celebration, the cigar smoke, twenty thousand people on the field, everybody having so much fun. So the LSU students probably thought, "Hey, let's get let's get involved in this. Let's get on video. Let's." I really think that was a factor. It seemed. It just seemed like such a big deal when Tennessee fans did it and somebody wanted to emulate that, not thinking how stupid they would look. Well, and I think you're right, John, because as I was, again, I had to cut across the field to get to the press conference waiting through fans for the second week in a row. There was one of those overhead cameras, those sky cameras, like on a cable or whatever, and that thing was zooming around to find the biggest pocket of fans that it could and hover over them. And you'd see that the students noticed that. They saw that camera. And so they were moving around trying to pose underneath that camera. And <laughs> you can course. bet that'll be that'll be shown on some video highlights. I have I have no doubt. All right, John, let's transition into our picks. Uh, I did a little bit. A little bit better, I guess, last week. Uh, I was three and three. You were two and four. So I've closed the deficit a little bit for the season. You still lead at 19 and 25. My record is 16 and 28 as the march to try to get one of us to 500 continues. We're going to pick several games this week. So uh, we'll, we'll navigate through these here. A game we haven't talked about, John Cocktail Party. This weekend, where you know, there's so much focus on that date with Tennessee at Georgia first Saturday, in November. Well, you got to get there first. And Georgia rivalry game this weekend. I know it's a down Florida team. Georgia is favored by 21 and a half against Florida in the cocktail party at the aforementioned Jacksonville. Uh, who are you taking in, in this one against the spread, of course? Yes, I, I'm definitely taking Georgia. Uh, yeah, things can different things can happen in a rivalry game, and Georgia has shown to be vulnerable and to have down days. It did that against Kent State in a 17-point win. It did it in a narrow escape against Missouri, which still is hard to figure out how did that happen. But I think it'll be it'll be up for Florida. This game's a big deal. Play it in Jacksonville. So it means something tradition-wise. This this isn't a game you look over. So I look for Georgia to play very well. And there's not – this isn't 
the talent level is is very wide. The gap in talent here is very wide. Maybe Anthony Richardson will make a couple of big runs, but uh, I don't give Florida much hope in this game. I think I agree with you here. I mean, I think, you know, Florida sits at four and three, and I actually think that's been a pretty good coaching job by Billy Napier to get them to four and three, because I just don't see, you know, the type of talent that would be needed to compete with, with Georgia in this game. I don't see the type of talent at Florida that I see at, at LSU for first year coach Brian Kelly. Uh, I, I think he's got more tools to work with there. I think it's been a nice job for Florida to get to four wins to this point. I think they are going to to get to a bowl game. They're, they're going to pick up a couple more here in the month of November, I believe. But I think it's it, it could get ugly, um, could get ugly in a hurry in Jacksonville. So I will take Georgia to cover that 21 and a half. We talked about Missouri, John, um, you know, for despite some of the frustration about that game around Vanderbilt and the lack of a quarterback change in Columbia. They, they did win, and now they have a chance for another against red-hot South Carolina. And your, your guy, Shane Beamer, out there, who nobody celebrates a triumph like Shane Beamer. Missouri's on the road <laughs> at Columbia, South Carolina. Gamecocks are favored by five and a half. I'll lead off. I'm going to take South Carolina in this one. I, I, know, I know Will Levis did not play in that game that South Carolina won for, for Kentucky. They didn't play, but South Carolina got the W there. They beat Texas A&M. They just, they're kind of scratching and clawing their way to respectability. I mean, heck they're ranked in the, in the top 25 this week. And I know, you know, Shane Beamer has that unique ability. It seems like to get under the skin of other coaches in this conference. Um, I think there's a lot of things that, about him that just just needles some of the old ball coaches you know the more he's a football guy you know th- those type of guys in this league but hey say what you will he's five and two and uh you know i think they can get to seven or eight wins really i mean you think they got missouri left on the schedule they got vanderbilt left on the schedule they have florida and what feels like kind of a toss-up game south carolina can they can get to eight and four. I, I think they win this week. I think they win by at least a touchdown. And I think there's going to be even more calls for a quarterback change um, in uh, in Columbia West after this game and, and a Missouri loss. I uh, Maybe I got off the South Carolina bandwagon too soon. You may have. Yeah, because in preseason, I thought this was a borderline top 25 team. Might and now here they into are. into that top 25. And... Just as I predicted, here they are knocking on that top 25 door. Uh, no, I certainly didn't think they would go about it this way. And as you mentioned, it, the only way, I, I think the only reason they beat Kentucky was because Will Levis didn't play. Uh, Kentucky's backup, well, it's, I won't, I'm sure he's a fine young man. Uh, so I'm, I'm going with South Carolina here too, though. I just, watching Missouri, it's just struggling to beat Vanderbilt. And I, I do, I, I do like the fact that Shane Beamer gets under the skin of other coaches. There's something to be said for that. I can see why he, he's got. Yeah, when I first heard him when we were SEC media days, and he seemed really likable. The more I've seen of him, though, I can see where he would be annoying to people. And I also think with other coaches, they all think. Well, the only reason he has that job is because Frank Beamer's his daddy. And so they they look down on him for that reason. Yeah, I would say that sentiment is, is certainly present in, in some pockets of, of this conference. I, I agree. And yeah, you, you've kind of made a career, John, out of an ability to get under the skin of a few folks. So I could see where you might might appreciate that uh, that ability in, in others. Uh, okay, another game here that one we've mentioned about uh, Tennessee, and you mentioned the, the turnaround that Josh Heupel has led in just two seasons, and in, in Knoxville, and how that's a that's a bad look for some other coaches that have been installed at their programs for much longer and haven't had the type of success that Tennessee is having this year. Well, Tennessee hosts Kentucky on Saturday night in um, in the rivalry game before the rivalry game. You have you have Georgia. In a couple weeks, obviously, that that could be a huge one with the SEC on the line. 
excuse me, SEC East on the line, but got to get there first if you're Tennessee. Kentucky coming to town. The Vols are an 11.5-point favorite. Who are you taking in this one? Well, I'm taking Tennessee big. In fact, if we were, if we could, you won't let me make an SEC game my lock of the week, or I would put, probably pick this one. I just don't think Kentucky matches up well against Tennessee. Its offensive line isn't as good as it usually is. I think Tennessee's defensive front will make some headway there. Pressure will Levis, and he won't have the game he had last year against Tennessee. As for Tennessee's offense, you look at, Kentucky just can't keep pace. The most Kentucky scored in a game this year is 37 points. It won't keep pace with Tennessee. So I really like Tennessee. The line were 14, I'd take Tennessee. I'm with you. We are we are in uh, lockstep here so far. I think this is going to be a comfortable Tennessee uh, victory. You, you look at what Kentucky's done inside the conference. You mentioned the most points they've scored is 37. Well, against an SEC opponent, the most points they scored uh, was was uh, 27 against Mississippi State. So they're they're not, even though Tennessee's defense has some vulnerabilities, it also has a pretty good pass rush. And and as you mentioned, I just don't think uh, Kentucky is is well prepared to try to win a shootout type game. They're more comfortable winning games where the final scores, uh, the winning team is in the 20s. Nobody that we've seen can can hold Tennessee to anywhere around that margin. So I I like you. We'll pick Tennessee to cover. Arkansas, three-and-a-half-point road favorite at Auburn. Is this Brian Harson's final stand? We've said that like four times now. I feel like I don't, maybe they just won't fire the guy, John. Maybe the joke's on all of us, and Brian Harson's going to be running out of the tunnel for the season opener next year. Would that be like the upset of the season? I mean, I know Appalachian State took down Texas A&M, and you know, Tennessee ends its 15 year year losing streak against Alabama. But I'm going to go ahead and say if if Brian Harson's coaching Auburn next year, it would be the upset of it would be the upset of college football this year. Yeah, he he's been an impossible situation this year. Uh you look at I mean, the record not good, but the recruiting going even worse. Yes. And Auburn brought all this on itself, so it's hard to feel sorry for them. Uh, yeah, it's hard for me to pick. I don't think I've picked Auburn in any game this year. Decent strategy. <laughs> Maybe one of the few we've implemented. <laughs> so you look at you look at Arkansas, some nice wins, some not so nice losses. Uh, hasn't done what you thought it would do, but it still could have a decent year. And in the quarterback situation. Uh, the disparity in quarterbacks, both are running quarterbacks, but uh, K.J. Jefferson also can throw the ball. I guess Robbie Ashford's still the quarterback at Auburn. Uh, it just seems like that could change at any time. Am I right on that? As far as I know, he's still the quarterback at okay. Auburn. All right. Well, he, yeah. passing is not his forte. He's 47% passer. Yeah, he's more of a wildcat type. Wide yes, receiver and with a quarterback uh, would, initials would that, next to his name. Would Auburn's offense be any, be any worse if it just put Tank Bigsby the back there in the Wildcat and just let him run? I'm, well, I mean, the one thing about it is I don't know if that offensive line is sturdy enough to to do that. At least with Ashford, he's got some speed. You know, he can run around like a chicken with his head cut off back there and maybe find some lanes. So. I think you're better off still having him as your quarterback and, and Tank as your running back, but it's it's not a winning formula regardless. You mentioned what Auburn you alluded to what Auburn's done against the spread. It's not good. They're two and five against the spread this year, so they're even worse against the spread than they are against their opponents. So yes, I'm taking Arkansas, even though I swore the last time I took Arkansas and they didn't cover that I was not going to be fooled again. Here I am. I can't bring myself. <laughs> to pick Auburn to cover this. So I'm, I'm taking our Arkansas and we're, we're still in unison. All right, John Ole Miss three point favorite on the road at Texas A&M. Despite how bad Ole Miss looked for the final three quarters of the game. Then I watched the Aggies. And so I just, I can't pick Texas A&M. I know they're going to be at home. Um, you know, Ole Miss dealing with some injuries. I thought they really missed Zach Evans in that game against LSU, one of their top running backs did not play. Then they had a couple of their best defensive players exit with injury. 
Uh, we were raving about that defense early in the season. Well, as it turns out, I guess that was just a byproduct of a week's schedule because Ole Miss's defense is is really fading here. Um, still like the offense, but I like the offense better when when you have uh, both your top running backs to to choose from. And Ole Miss didn't have that last week, but. I don't know. It's hard to bring yourself to pick Texas A&M at this point. So I will take Ole Miss to cover the three-point spread. And one thing you got to say about Ole Miss, they have beaten the, the really inferior teams on their schedule. And and Texas A&M looks like it belongs in, in that category. In today's game, it, it's hard not to really put a lot of stock in the quarterbacks. I mean, we, we just... Jackson Dart, Ole Miss's quarterback, is very athletic. He's a really good runner. I don't like the fact that he tries to run over defenders as much as he does. I could see him exiting early in this game. That his, his approach troubles me a bit, and he's inconsistent in his passing. But then I look at Texas A&M quarterback situation. Max Johnson, he's already done. He's done for the year, isn't he? Didn't his injury? Uh, yes, he, yes. Exactly. I mean, season. would you want to? Would you want to play? For, I mean, if you had an injury, you're going to take the easy way out. And uh, I mean, you, what quarterback wants to be, play behind that offensive line? Well, yeah. I mean, as a three and four team, Max Johnson yeah. broke his hand. I'm not coming back to no <laughs> to I, play for that team or that offensive line. I mean, sorry, maybe that just you know we hear anymore that college football players are soft and the game doesn't mean it to them what they used to. Well, that. I don't know. Maybe there's some truth to that, but I'm not coming back with a broken hand to play behind behind this line. John, I wrote that that Texas A&M needs to make a quarterback change. Yeah, I know Connor Wigman didn't didn't play. He looked like a true freshman when when he was out there against South Carolina. He looked like a true freshman making his college debut, which he was. And maybe it's dangerous to put a true freshman behind that offensive line. But at this point, if you're A&M, you have to prepare for the future because the present stinks. And there really isn't much to play for at, at present other than getting yourself ready for the future. We've seen what what things look like between Haynes King and, and Jimbo Fisher. It is not a winning formula. I'd I'd hand the reins and, and make this Connor Wigman season the rest of the way. Um uh, you're not you're not on board well, with that. Well, I I can see your reasoning there, but that do you want him crippled too? I mean, Haynes King is hurt also. I mean he he runs around back there. He moves around like a 70-year-old guy. He is beat up. I don't want Connor Wigman hurt, but I also don't want him transferring. So I want to send the message saying, oh, hey, you're okay. you're the guy for the future. We're, we're turning the page now. You don't even need to think about the portal because this job is yours next season. Uh, we're moving on from Haynes King. I had an odd take on that the last part of that game because I didn't think Connor Wegman's helmet fit right on his head. <laughs> games coming down to the wire and you're looking at that helmet yeah. security. <laughs> I just, uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe it'd been a long day for me. Maybe that's all it was, but I just, I, I had a problem with that. Every time I saw him, it made, it made him look, it impacted my critique of him. I, I think I probably thought he was worse than he really was. So yeah, if you want to start him, I, no. I mean, if, you know, if you were the offensive coordinator and I were the head coach and you said, hey, I want to start Connor, I'd say, okay, it's fine. Well, the beauty of Jimbo's situation, though, is he doesn't have an offensive coordinator, so no one's telling him what to do. That's, did you did you pick Ole Miss right. in this game? Yes. Yeah, I you did. did. Okay, I didn't so we're, state that. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm we're, sorry. We're still sorry. in unison. We've got okay. one game outside the SEC and then our lock of the week. Outside the SEC. Ohio State, 14-and-a-half-point favorite at Penn State. I'm not going to hesitate with this one. Ohio, I made Ohio State my lock of the week last week against Iowa. It was a massive spread. They covered with ease. I've, I'm have i high on the Buckeyes right now. If you had me pick a, a national champion at this who's going to win the national championship, I would pencil in Ohio State as my pick. Uh, I had them penciled in to reach the national championship going into the season. And uh, and now I have them winning it, and I have them winning this game uh, by more than the fourteen and a half they need to cover the spread. Yeah, when I saw what Michigan did to Penn State, I think Ohio State will do the same thing. I just uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I, I'm high on Ohio State too. And I think Ohio State, another factor to consider with big spreads in Ohio State, even bigger spreads, uh, I might make Ohio State my lock of the week every week to, from here on out. Well, you can't do that this week because I had him in the know, in the game list, and we've we've clarified that. So I'm going to let you marinate on your uh, your lock of the week. I'll offer mine, and for the first time since about week three, I did get my lock of the week last week. So I've got some more pep in my step, and and I'm sticking with my strategy of ignoring the group of five. I got into a rut there where I kept picking group of five <laughs> games as my lock, and. Turns out I don't know much about the group of five, apparently, because I missed every one of them. But I'm sticking with with the power five here, and I am taking NC State 13.5-point favorite at home against Virginia Tech. I'll say the Wolfpack will cover that 13.5-point spread. Virginia Tech's been really, really ugly this year. Um, They are limping into this thing on a four-game losing streak. They're coming off an open date. Who cares? Um, I say that doesn't make a difference. And the team that lost to Old Dominion in their season opener, that would be Georgia Tech, uh, is going to lose by at least two touchdowns to NC State. Wolfpack or my lock? I don't like Virginia Tech at all. But on the other hand, I don't like any team in that conference, except maybe North Carolina because they can score a bunch. But And you, and like, that Car- Forest- you like that powder blue, that Carolina yeah, blue. Yeah, and, and I kind of like the uh, – kind of like Wake Forest a little bit too, but, uh, uh, no. So I, I would, uh, I'm on board. That's, that's a fair pick. Um, I'm going a different route. Nothing has really worked for me in these locks. I will say that it uh, should be an asterisk by my pick. Some of my picks, because I've twice brought up a lock of the week and you said, no, you can't do that because we're picking the game. So that, Honestly, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but it was really demoralizing to me. Yeah, we can see it in your record. It's clearly <laughs> following you around. <laughs> and not only did you that- take the loss, you took the mental defeat too. <laughs> yes, I did. I, I've got a lot of give up in me. So I will go with uh, BYU against East Carolina. I'm taking BYU, giving three points. I think it will bounce back from a humiliating loss to Liberty. One thing you say about BYU, you can't keep them down. You really can't. Gone through a lot. Can't keep, yes. can't keep those folks down. No. They bounce back every time. Persecution, adversity, you name it, they keep coming. So, good pick. I don't know I, much about East Carolina. Do you know anything about East Carolina? I know they gave North Carolina State all they could handle in the season opener but that didn't scare me from taking North Carolina State to cover the spread against Virginia Tech. I think we got two winners this week, John. For the first time since, like, the season opener, we're going to go two for two on our locks. I I believe in it, and our march toward 500 continues. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.